Okay, welcome back to another episode of Steel City Scrubs, uh, recording from an undisclosed location in McCain, PA. I'm with my co-scrubs, G, Grant, and uh, Kevin, and Bert. How we doing, fellas? Pretty good, even though you just disclosed the location. Well, McCain, <laughs> there's like 72 houses here, so... <laughs> And, and no cell service. Yeah, yeah. exactly, and no cell service. Uh, we're doing this one together. We just feel like it flows a little bit better. Hopefully the sound quality is pretty good. Um, so we're going to be talking. This is fresh off a Game 4 win to even the series against the Ottawa Senators for the Pens. 2-2. Um, first start for Matt Murray. We're just going to dive right in. Um, Pens pull it out 3-2, but not without a little bit of uh, hair pulling at the end there. Sense uh, bringing him within one with about five minutes left. And Carlson gets two good licks off, but Murray stopped him. And uh, we were able to hold on 3-2. So, you know, series of seesawed so far, 1-1, one, 1-1. One, one, one. Um, where are we going from here? And what the fuck is going on with the goalie position now? We just talked about last week, you know, what, what happens if Flurry carries us. But this happens, and... Um, I guess let's start with the goalie position because that was definitely the, the talk of it. Kev, let's start with you. What did you see from Murray tonight? And obviously we're sticking with him right now, but do you think is this the road that we keep now with, with Murray? Uh, I wrote down in my notes just a little bit um, kind of this question that it, it doesn't really matter who they throw in, um, especially after game three, how bad they were. Um, I just feel like with both potential of those goalies, um, both all-star caliber goalies, they both won cups. I don't think it matters who you put in, especially after the game that Murray just had, and obviously Fleury's been the hot guy. Um, so they, they played a lot better. I mean, they were aggressive on the boards. They, they weren't slow to pucks. They hustled. Um, they, they put a better product out in front of their goalie. Um, but Sullivan's got a tough decision come game five. Um, Grant, what do you think? I don't know. Obviously, Sullivan saw something. Uh Maybe he saw reminiscent of Flurry after the 2009 Cup. Saw some signs that were pointing to that he was going to lose his shit and stop performing the way he was performing all up until Game Three. I mean, that's that's the only thing I could think of. And better move by the coach to put in Matt Murray so that he can change the tide of where the series was headed. Yeah. Uh... To me, I, I just see like the Penguins were looking for a reason to put Murray in, get him as their starter again, like, specifically for the fact that he's so young. He has so many more years left to play than Flurry. Just uh, you could tell like the way the way they try to stick with Flurry because he was playing so well and he got so far in the playoff series at this point. But uh, they're just looking for a reason to get Murray back in there, you know, just to see see if he can take the take the shot quantities that he was taking beforehand get him back in there, and as he played tonight, like you guys saw, he, he played very well, he shut down a lot of great chances, and only put up two goals. So. Right, and so there's two ways that Sully could have gone about this. One is that, because at least the initial reports that I heard were that they were sticking with Flurry uh, for Game 4, and that it was just you know going to be a bump in the road, but that didn't end up happening, because it was announced today that, uh, that Murray was going to start. But, yeah, one of the ways is, you know, he sticks with Flurry. This is always going with the veteran guy. He's sticking through because this is the guy who's gotten us here. But he, but he went with Murray, and um, it ended up being the right move. Like G said, you know, you don't want to let the series get out of hand where something like this or something like that in Game 3 happens again and we're down 3-1. 
Uh, that's something that's hard to come back from. Just for Sully to stop the bleeding, um, again, revision his history is 2020, but um, you know that ended up being the right move, and it's another right move by a Penn's coach who, you know, knock on wood, hasn't lost a series yet. Yeah, I mean, touching back on the fact that you, you said it could have gone down to 3-1, uh, NHL Network said that uh, there's a 66% chance of losing the series if you go down 3-1. to one. So, I mean, obviously you got to stop the bleeding at 2-1 to because if you go down 3-1, chances are not very good that you're going to continue on to the cup. Yeah, it was really both goalies just based on their past. When Murray is playing, he seems to be, you know, generally really good all around and he doesn't get shaken up too much. It's just whenever Flurry plays and he has one shitty game, it seems like that kind of haunts him and carries over a little bit. So. Right, and it's weird how like the scripts are flipped, sort of, with Flurry being the veteran guy, but he's the guy who's more shaken up, and and Murray's you know younger, but he's more steady. And like even when we talked about like if you watch the game, like the the first goal that Murray let in, it was like you know some sense defenseman just slapped it on, and uh, one of the Senators centers got a, just his, his stick on it, and it flicked in, and we just said you know that's a shot that Flurry might stop, but he's going to let in like three or four like easy ones before that. So like Murray's just solid. He makes the saves he's supposed to. And as we found out tonight, you know, two goals when the pens are clicking, two goals given up is enough to just give us the win, even if it's a close one. No doubt. Yep. Murray, the butterfly god. Yeah, he made a couple just vintage saves that we were like, that was that's good to see. Anybody else? Anything on Murray? All right, well, let's continue on uh, the Game 4 recap. Again, a 3-2 win for the Pens to even up the series 2-2. Um, the forecheck was something that we saw. You know, we took a shit ton of penalties. Like two, too many men on the ice. We were just very frustrating. But, you know, guys who do are supposed to do the dirty work, like Scott Wilson, um, some of the defensemen, those guys seem to be, you know, pressuring the uh, sends in their own zone, and we got a couple turnovers, got a couple great chances. I don't think we scored off any of them, but we got great chances, and we made Anderson think in those situations. That's something that we haven't seen, and it's been frustrating to watch an offense this high-powered to you know just do the dump-and-chase kind of conservative bullshit, but um, to see the forecheck going was refreshing tonight. Yeah, I mean, we go back to Sullivan making the right coaching decisions at the right times with the Murray-Flurry decision. He put guys that were grinders on every line so that it energized the rest of the line in the skill players like Crosby and Sheary and all those guys. You put guys like Carter Rowney, Scott Wilson, as Max mentioned, Josh Archibald, you put them out there. They start scrapping. Everybody else feeds off of that energy, which in my opinion is what the Penguins need. They need guys that are down in the corners, scrapping it out, and not afraid to go to the net. Without Hornquist, obviously, we're... We're kind of hurting in that kind of position. The guy that scraps in front of the net is not worried to take a puck to the face if he has to. <laughs> so uh, we, you definitely got to go, keep riding Sullivan's coattails with his decision-making. I mean, he's very rarely wrong, as we've seen the last two seasons. So uh, I'm I'm Team Sully all the way. a girl. Yeah, man. Uh, <laughs> just looking, looking at the forecheck, like Max brought up, just they, they seem to play a lot more aggressive this game rather than the last couple games. Right. That's, that's you have to fight through that one three one type of play that the Senators play. You know, just uh, yeah, they got to be aggressive with good puck support, and that's how they got got those goals. And they allowed uh, the Demon to join the rush as well. That's how Mata got his goal. Dumoulin got his goal. Granted, it was a little bit of luck too, but 
hey, all that aggressiveness, aggressiveness had paid off. Right, but I mean, they they don't even play a conventional one three one. They play like a like a like a hybrid version of it. They're playing the one three one where two guys will pinch on the puck at, at neutral at the neutral zone. So, guy, when when you have the guys from the defense stepping up, that's when shit starts to open up and you can create more opportunities by the defense pinching. But when you're playing from behind, it's hard to have the defense pinching, as we saw in the last game, game three, and then game four, we saw it on a completely different Pittsburgh team. That was a quick glimpse at Grant Melrose. Yeah, go ahead. Classes in session. Um, last point we want to touch on in, in terms of game four, and maybe we'll even go a little bit further, but um, two goals from guys that we usually don't have them from Dumoulin. And then, who was the other one from? Mata. Mata, yeah. Holy shit. The lesbian. Mata was surprised he scored that. I mean, everybody everybody <laughs> in the, everybody watching the game was. Um, so, two goals. The Dumoulin one, I mean, it goes off the Senators' skate, and it's just one of those where, you know, you're going to take the luck, obviously. Um, but the Mata one, I mean, he just snuck it in there, a quick little snipe by the guy. And uh, it ended up being the difference, both of those. We needed both of those. So, I mean, that's it goes without being said how huge that is to get those guys scoring. Crosby has the third, but when it seems like Kessel has a quiet night, you know, Sheary had a couple chances, but didn't uh, didn't get any to connect. How, I mean, that's that's huge, and if we have that going forward, I mean, that's just, those are other weapons. I don't even want to call Mata and Dumoulin weapons, but I mean, that, that's just, those are added bonuses that we haven't had in the past. Yeah, I mean, you look at a guy like Dumoulin, um, I think he's got five goals in his entire NHL career, which is 163 regular season games, 45 playoff games. And three of those five goals have come in those 45 playoff games. So at least the dude steps up when he needs to. I mean, you got to give him that, that credit right there. Other players' skates, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, given that they might be lucky goals, but uh, goal's a goal. They all count the yeah. same on the fucking scoreboard. I mean, <laughs> go. Oh, fuck. All right, anybody else got anything? Not, no, I mean, you saw the goal that Anderson gave up on Mata. Uh, it looked like he completely just disregarded Mata's ability to shoot the puck. Um, and, and even in the NHL, when you give a, an NHL-caliber player, uh, defenseman or not, third-line defense, um, he's going to shoot and he's got a chance to score. And, and Anderson left it wide open, took away the, the pass on the backside post, and Mata put it through. So that was a huge huge goal for that kid, um, especially recently how he's played. Um, so it was good to see that from him. Yeah, okay. I agree. Mm-hmm. I just want to point back to what I said, like the, the aggressiveness to that Sullivan unleashed tonight, or a lot of players to do, just kind of allow for the demon to step up and uh, make those type of plays, join the rush. And especially with Daly coming back to it, I believe it helped out quite a bit. Yeah, and I, uh, I was going to point out that it was kind of a breath of fresh air that um, the, the aggressiveness that Sully instilled in these guys um, and picked them back up from the last game that we saw. Crosby looked like a completely different player than last game. Um, he was right. flying around the ice making Crosby plays and getting aggressive on the boards. Um, and, and another person I'd like to point out is Carl Haglin. He looked awesome. It looked like yes. he finally got his skates back under him. It, you can tell he's, he's, again, now he's the fastest player on the ice, uh, maybe second to Connor Sheary. But it was great to see Haglin just, just intimidating people on the, the penalty kill, um, chasing down pucks in the other end. Um, so it, it was nice to see that that those guys had their skates back under them and that kind of will. For sure. Um, We'll touch on Mata real quick. I mean, this is something that 
we wrote down before this game happens, and of course he goes out and scores a fucking goal, and he's just as surprised as we are. But um, you know, I think it's he's a guy who people have, to put it lightly, shit on in the past, and we're definitely no strangers to that. But I mean, you know, this is one game and it's one shot. But you know, the things that we're seeing out of him. Um, why don't you guys touch on just what you've seen and how you just don't think he's measured up and how with that, with the absences of Daly and Latang, it's really shown through. I mean, he's slow to pucks. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. So I mean, defense, you can't really be slow to pucks. you got to recognize the play that you, that's going to happen and stop it. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of fucking defense. You, you stop shit from happening. So to not be able to read a play, to be able to react quickly enough, it just... That right there is a subpar play from a defenseman. I mean, we don't need him to score 50 goals a season. He's not fucking Sidney Crosby. We'll leave that to Sid. So you just need him to play solid defense and not let shit happen when it's not supposed to happen. Yeah, you need all your D-men, no matter who it is, to play solid all the time in order to have a good Stanley Cup run. And previously until tonight, Motto is you know, mediocre at best, especially in his decision-making. Grant said he was always slow to puck, slow to joining the rush, that type of thing. But before before he had that surgery to remove the tumor, it seemed like he played with a lot of confidence, a lot of, I don't say swagger, but he really enjoyed the way he had, the way his, his game was. And ever since that long long time that he had off, and returning from that, it just seems like he's lost that, that style of play. So maybe tonight scoring that goal will be a, a resurgence for him so he can you know be more confident in his decisions, be confident joining the rush, getting into the pucks. But we'll see. Only only time will tell. Yeah, I mean, watching today's game, he definitely stepped up more. I mean, he was trying to push the offense, which maybe that's what Sully told him to do, step the fuck up, play some offense. I mean, you never know what, what goes on in the locker room, but I would imagine because that's what the result was, that was probably what happened. Yeah, I'll take a different approach to this question, um, and I'll start with Wednesday night. Obviously not a lot of break points as far as the Pens team, but... I saw something posted um, from on Twitter from Penn's blog that gave some modest stats that I kind of scratched my head at. But Wednesday night, um, for even strength hockey, 5-on-5, five five, Mata was 20 shots for um, for the Pens and then only 9 against when he was on the ice. And they had 9 scoring chances for and then only 3 against. And he was rated as 0 high danger chances against. Um, and I will point out he's a plus 7 in the playoffs. Um, tonight obviously changes that number. Uh, so... This series is perfect for him. Um, it's not the high pace that we've played the last two games. The Senators kind of sit back in the 1-3-1 zone, as Burt pointed out. Um, so this slow game kind of allows him to use his fundamentals. Um, but obviously the, the overtime loss that they had where he got burnt to the puck, that obviously is fresh in people's minds, and that's on the highest display. Um, so everybody's going to see that, and that's going to be the thing most talked about. But um, as Burt pointed out, before he had that thyroid cancer, um, the Pens gave him a huge contract. Uh, the, the future was so bright for this kid. Everybody was excited for him. He was the next big thing in Pittsburgh. Uh, so it's good to see him have a good night and uh, be the spectacle of a game for once instead of uh, on the wrong side of a, of a victory. So, For sure. Um, let's move on real quick to something that's been a recurring theme in the playoffs and especially the last two series, which is that every game, win or loss, it seems like one penguin goes down or is shaken up, um, even more than usual. And you know, A lot of people are just chalking it up to playoff hockey, whatever that means. But it's almost like, I mean, and again, you know, this is a Pittsburgh sports podcast, make no mistake, but 
it just seems like people are ignoring blatantly dirty hits and chalking it up to playoff hockey in the interest of that the Penguins are the defending Stanley Cup champions and considered probably the most talented team in the NHL. It's kind of like, I mean, you guys know I'm a basketball guy, but it's kind of like how the NBA people treat Golden State, the Golden State Warriors, how they're just so talented that it's almost like fair if one of their key guys goes down or somebody in that um, sort of army goes down. So, like, tonight, for example, like, who did we see just get a fucking Rue elbow? Rue, Rue, yeah, he just fucking takes one right to the uh, to the head, you know, when he's going down, on his way down. And not only does it not get called for a penalty, we get a penalty because Ian Cole comes in and defends his teammate, which, you know, whatever. And then we go to, it's at the end of the first period, so we go to the the people just standing there in the NBC Sports Network. I don't even know their fucking names. But they're standing there and say, yeah, it's just a clean hit. It's a clean hit. I mean, I don't know a lot about hockey, but I know that that's a fucking dirty hit. Okay? And so the guy has a fucking bloody nose, which all I've been told in hockey is, oh, if there's blood, then it's a five-minute major. It's, you know, it's whatever. That's one of the things they look for. Well, there's fucking blood, and Sully is rightfully enraged, and, you know, he makes his peace, but it doesn't end up getting anything. So this is just the latest one. I mean, even going back to, uh, you know, what was it? Rust got rocked or Sheary got rocked. You know, Crosby obviously in the Capitals series and then Rust as well. Um, it's just, it's a recurring theme and people just seem to chalk it up to playoff hockey because the Penguins are so fucking good and talented that they somehow don't deserve the same calls that other teams are getting. I mean, that's my piece. What do you guys think? I'm going to say this right now. I knew something like that was coming, but that gave me chills. Um. <laughs> no homo. No homo. Yeah, no homo. No homo. Yeah. Um, but just to, I, I mean, I don't even know where to go from here. You, you pretty much covered everything. Um, the Penguins are getting picked on. Uh, I, I think they're a soft team. I think they need somebody out there to attack, to defend the guys. I mean, Ian Cole was jumping in, defending Ruedel. Okay, I mean, we, I don't even think he landed a single punch in that entire sequence of him on top of Bobby Ryan. No, he just like dry humping him. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it looked like some weird kind of porno that was getting slid in on us on accident. Um, but anyway, um, you need somebody that'll go out there, fucking lay out their best player. Like, for example, Carlson, just to fucking throw an elbow in the back of his head. I'm not saying dirty hockey's the way to go, but you need somebody to at least threaten that you will do things to the other team if they do things to your team. Sestito can't be that busy right now, right? Yeah, but, I mean, you need somebody with some, at least a little bit of talent. I mean, I'm not saying Sestito's complete shit, but, eh. He knows his role. He knows his role. No, Scotty Wilson knows his role. Throwing 10 out of 50 hits, I think, or something like that. Scott Wilson fucks. Yeah, Yeah. he fucks. (laughs) That boy fucks. Um, well, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pick up. Um, now that I know who put uh, are the Pens a soft hockey team um, on this list, but uh, uh, the, the injuries are obviously the biggest problem of the, the Pens. But uh, uh, a lot of it you can chalk up to pre-existing injuries. I mean, Latang, countless games every year has been missed just from the weirdest things, like the stroke he's got. Was it blood clots? Was that him? No, uh, it was uh, Duquis. But uh, now back surgery. He always seems to have something that's hurt. Um, Daly seems to be pointing in that direction. Obviously Crosby with his head issues. Um, so a lot of this is pre-existing injuries that guys can't seem to shake. Uh, Max mentioned playoff hockey. That's all we hear from. They were 
all the, the sideline reporters and the announcers. And um, I'd like to bring up a, a, a different kind of stat here is, is Sully likes the shot-blocking defensive style. Um, the Pens blocked 867 shots this year, um, but that was only full-time players. It's, it's kind of a hard stat to track, so I could only count full-time players. Um, and that ranks 12th out of the, the NHL, and only two of the top 10 teams in blocked shots missed the playoffs. Uh, so so it is. It, it proves that the, the shot-blocking style works, but at what price? Uh, I mean, you see guys like Ian Cole taking... I think he was he finished third in the NHL in block shots. Um, just guys like that putting their body on the line all the time, and eventually you're going to catch one in the face. Like uh, what was it, Warinsky from uh, the Blue Jackets? who yeah, couldn't play. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, Burton will finish it out. Yeah, I um, I don't know if that sure the shot blocking style that Sullivan likes to go with it, it definitely plays a role. I'm not discounting that. But to me, it's just like the, the style of play that evolves when the playoffs rolls around, how aggressive everyone gets, how, how fast they play. Um, I just think the, the officiating needs to adapt to that and call, call calls the same that they would during the regular season just because it's more you know intense, intense play because it's the playoffs. They all want that cup. It's the same goal at the end. They, they still have to call the same calls that they would during the regular season. And no matter who, who it is, who it's on, who it's against, it's a all-star like Crosby or some, you know, fifth-line guy, whoever that is. They picked up from their AHL affiliate, whoever it is. They all have to call the same calls because in the end, it's their, it's the players. You know, it's their physical health going to the future that's gonna, you know, take a take a hit from that. You know, whatever whatever the injury is, it's all it's always gonna affect them later in their life. And it's not just about the sports, it's about their their life later on with their family and how they can live. It needs to be. The game needs to be officiated the same way it does during the regular season, and when the the officiating does not do that, and coaches kind of encourage those dirty type of plays, as uh, Barry Trotz says, quote unquote, regarding the the Sidney Crosby hit, quote unquote, well, I thought it was really a hockey play, and obviously that was not exactly a hockey play. He took a bow to the face and got concussed. It's just got it's got to be changed, in my opinion. Right, and I think you know. What you're talking about in a perfect world, in a vacuum, that's that stuff's going to happen where they call a game in the regular season the same as in the playoffs. But I think, you know, I, I, I definitely understand that, you know, it's just like in the NBA, like they call games in the regular season and playoffs differently because guys are playing more intense, there's more contact allowed, and you can't be blowing the whistle every two seconds in hockey or basketball, especially with how free flowing both games are. But there's a difference between the hit that we saw tonight and then. You know, you know, like a like a slashing Nis- penalty well, or mean, a hook. Even the Crosby Niskanen, the Crosby Niskanen thing. Yeah, I mean that was a blatant elbow to the dude's fucking head. Right, right. And so what I'm saying basically is, there's a difference between not calling a standard hooking penalty that's not going to endanger a guy's well being, and then not calling a direct hit to the head, elbow to the head that pins the guy's head between the glass and an elbow, or Crosby where he's already gotten nicked by. <laughs> Ovechkin in the head, a guy with pre-existing con- conditions, history, as Kev said, and then just takes a cross-check right to the dome. You know, those are things that, as Bert said, can affect guys going forward. Um, and so there's just differences between, you know, things that, okay, well, you know, that's 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 playoff hockey. That's fine to chalk up, but when it endangers a guy's well-being and those are actual things that are happening and they're just being chalked up to something as pedestrian as that, I mean, that's just... You know, blatant ignorance. I think so. I don't know. It's all yeah. about ratings to me. I mean, 
penalties slow the game down. Um, the bigger hits, uh, the casual fan at home is not watching the intricacies like we are. They're not looking at the best players in the world making nice passes or nice sauce passes around sticks. They're, they're watching the fast-paced hockey. There's no breaks. Um, people like hockey because it's gritty. It's hard-nosed. People are getting hit all the time. There's fights. So when the refs blow the whistle and, and stop the game, I mean, it slows everything down. People get uninterested. People complain all the time about football, that there's so many stoppages. So um, hockey's kind of that different pace where uh, calling the, the penalties to slow the game down, especially in the when it's the playoffs, as much excitement as you can get, you're going to let go. So, to me, that that has to play a role in all of this. All right. Anybody else? All right. Very spirited discussion. Um, let's talk about real quick, you know, I think we mentioned how the game's a flip-flop. Um, what They took game one, right? Or we took one? We took one. We took one. We took one, they took two. They took two. They yeah, took three. Took three. And we yeah. take four. So... The four very different games. Um, the first, well, one, two, and four are pretty close. Three was pretty much a complete shellacking, not in our favor. What have you guys seen in terms of the two wins that we've gotten and then the two losses that we've suffered? What have been the differences? Aggressiveness. Okay. To put it simply, I mean, okay. Obviously, in the two games that they've won, they've been on the attack more. Um, and the Senators, vice versa, they. Obviously, in Game 3, they attacked like no other team has seen the Senators play this year. Mm-hmm. They've been playing that 1-3-1 one, one style defense, fucking lulling you to sleep, scoring one goal and beating you in the third period with one goal. I mean, the only the only um, anomaly that we saw was the uh, Game 3. They're only in one-goal games. That's all they do is one-goal games in that... They just play so much defense that it's impossible to score. Mm-hmm. So the Penguins scored three goals, then they tightened up their defense, which eventually led to some eh, maybe shitty turnovers eh, and resulted in goals for the Senators. So if you look at it that way, I mean, that's the difference. This is the aggressiveness of the teams. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Grant. It's the way the way the Pens have played in those two wins is just a very aggressive, fast-paced team. They played their game that they played all all year round, and when those two losses, they they kind of submitted to that one-three-one, how they just slow down the play and the, the Senators get their way most of the time. They like Grant said, they score one, two goals, and they win on that. You know, the Penguins in those two wins, they just, they fought around that, they persevered through that that style of game that the Senators play. And they just they kept chasing pucks. They kept getting to the net, and it eventually worked out for them. So moving forward, the the Penguins obviously have to adapt to some of the negatives that they saw in that game four, or whatever they were. But they just have to keep that style of aggressiveness and speed that they had, keep it going in game five. And I believe if they do that, they'll they'll put the centers behind the eight ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't have much to add, but uh, it's hard to discredit games where you lose by four goals, but. Uh, if you throw the game three out, I mean, the Pens, in my opinion, they owned every period of those games. Um, the, the only loss being that game one in overtime, um, in which we saw Mata get toasted. But but that game, they had so many scoring chances and were robbed by Anderson in the post so many times that I feel like every game but game three, the Pens have been in the driver's seat. And if, if a couple bounces here and there find the back of the net, the, this series is completely different. Um, so, so like Bert said, if they can keep that intensity that they had in all three of those games, I, I think the Pens are well off in the series. Okay. Yep. All right. 
let's move on real quick. Um, keep moving to our last couple of Pens topics. Let's go around and give uh, Game 4 MVP real quick, uh, starting with Bert. Who you got for Game 4 MVP? I was only able to watch one full period. I had to listen to the rest of it. Um, I don't know. I want to say Sid. Like I heard uh, Mike Lang talking about him, giving him high praise throughout the game. He was just really buzzing. He played like the captain that he was. And he found the back of the net once for the game-winning goal, right? It was the third, right? Yeah, yeah, it was the third, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so... Yeah, obviously he came to play, and he had fire under his ass, and that's exactly what the captain needs to do. Cool. Kev? Uh, I'll go Matt Murray. Um, for the sole fact that I think there, it was very hard to find somebody that, that thought that Murray deserved to start this game. Um, mm-hmm. Everything you saw, just by the way, Flurry was kind of hung out in Game 3, that that Murray probably shouldn't have started this game. Um, so that, with the, the amount of pressure on this kid to perform and, and meet the expectations of people in Pittsburgh who have so much love for Marc-Andre, mm-hmm. um, I think that's huge. And, and also, to rebound from an injury, he hasn't played in, what, 12 games um, since oh. the start of the Blue Jackets series. So I think that's huge for him to come out and look so sharp um, and steal a game in Ottawa. I think, I think he's my game four MVP. I'm going to slide a little bit differently. I'm going to go with Ian Cole. Just based on his, it's not necessarily just the game four. It's what he brings to the team every single game in and out. Dude's blocking shots, giving up his body for the team. He fucking defends people when he need when they need to be defended, as we saw with Bobby Ryan getting the quote unquote punches to the face, which didn't actually happen. <laughs> it was more of a, like Matt said, a dry hump. Um, but. You look at this this guy. He comes in every freaking day, performs to the best of his abilities, and just does whatever he can, whatever he can, to help the Penguins win, no okay. matter what. I thought we were gonna see Connor or uh, Carter Rowney there. So a little different. <laughs> Game yeah, three, boy. A little different. Game All three. right, fair enough. I'm gonna go personally with a uh, little Scott Wilson. Everybody, uh, everybody kind of mentioned how Sully's been moving the lines around and how we've tried to put a little grit on each line, and he's been a huge part of that. Uh, he's a huge part of the forecheck tonight, um, and just you know, a guy who he's had a pretty good series, pretty good playoffs. Um, not exactly a big goal scorer, but he's just he's beating people to pucks. Like G said, how important that is, not just for defensemen, but just people in general. Those fifty fifties, and he had so many of those tonight where he. You know, either took it away or beat somebody to it, um, and those things matter. Even if they don't score goals, they generate great scoring chances. They take away scoring chances for the other team, so that stuff matters. And I mean, this series we've seen it. I mean, there's no five-four games here. Everything's two-one, one-zero, three-two. I mean, it's it's a grind. You know, to use some cliches, it's a hard hat series, lunch pail. You know, all the yes. all the stereotypes, all the cliches, and Scott Wilson embodies all that. Yeah. Um, so. We'll, we'll touch on Game 3 real quick. I think we've all talked about how it didn't go, how any of us wished. But um, quick Game 3 recap, starting with G, MVP, because I know there's one guy that he wants to talk about specifically. And what went wrong aside from the obvious goaltending struggles? Okay, so my Game 3 MVP is Carter fucking Rowney. That dude went in like a fucking missile on every fucking puck that he was out there on the ice for. You don't come across a guy putting that much effort in every single every single shift that he's out 
in, in, an, in an entire game. I mean, you just don't see it that often. He was balls to the wall the entire fucking time. Um, given he doesn't really put the puck in the net, I think he has maybe two goals in his NHL career, which is pretty short, but I'm going to guess two goals. So, um, <laughs> a guy like that, you're, he's just there for a morale boost. He wants to, he goes in, hits a guy, gets the puck, maybe dishes it out to Sid or whoever's on his line that night, and fucking hopefully they bury a goal because he's certainly not going to do it, which is not expected. So, I mean, Carter Rowney's my Game 3 MVP, simple as that. I don't have an MVP. This uh, this uh, segment was specifically designed for G to talk about Carter Rowney. So, if <laughs> yeah. anybody else has anything to say on Game 3, because no, Game 3 fucking blew. That was Grant's um, I'll, I'll piggyback off Grant's yeah. just a little bit. Uh, seeing, seeing how Rowney has played along with some of the other guys that has been brought up from the baby pens throughout the season, specifically in the playoffs. Uh, Rowney, uh, Scott Wilson originally, whenever he came up, and uh, Archibald at times as well, and then Sherry and Gensel, you know, they've all come up through the, the, the farm system. They've proven to be, you know, very, very good players, especially the way they fit the system. They can mold around the playmakers that the Pens have. It's just, uh, you know, you, you see them out there playing. They, they try to play their game. They're trying to earn a spot, permanent roster, you know. Yeah, I've, I've got I've got one more to to add on to Burt's is uh, I'll, I'll go with Ruedel for the sole fact that it wasn't Poliot on the ice. Um, so oh, I like that. There's my MVP. Shots, Wayne. shots. All right, um, all right. Well, next thing we have up is you know Game Four obviously changed a lot of this, but one more time on the goaltender drama. I'll start I'll start this off with Kev. Um, you know, in terms of the Game Four performance of Murray and uh, game three struggles of Flurry, despite getting us to this point. I mean, is there any other? Is there any argument? Even even changing of what happened uh, when we talked about this last week in terms of who we're going to give up for the expansion draft. I mean, does this change your opinion? I mean, I know it's just one game, but I mean, these are decisions that obviously Sully and the front office are, are thinking about right now. Right. So am I? Am I? Uh, I guess I don't understand the question. Is is this? Changing my opinion on um, who I want them to keep for the expansion draft or for start for Game 5? Um, yeah, we'll just go expansion draft right now because I think the obvious choice is Murray for Game 5 at least. Yeah, well, my, my choice is obviously Murray. I mean, he's young. He's 22 years old. He's cheap. Um, they still have him on his rookie contract. Um, and he won a Stanley Cup. So uh, he's talented as it, as it gets. He, he's the best young goalie in the NHL. Um, and... Unless the only reason they, they would have Flurry is if, if he won't waive his no trade clause um, because they'd have to protect him. Um, so so I think I think Murray's obviously the, the choice there, but um, it sucks to see Flurry go, but I think that ultimately that's that's what's gonna happen. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Kevin. You know, just that you can't discount the fact that Murray has so many more years, not so many, but a lot of years left to play rather than Flurry and you know, if they lose Flurry, yeah, he's a fan favorite. And it's going to hurt for the fans, but from a business standpoint, and you know, the fans moving forward a year after Flurry is gone, they want another cup. Who's going to really, you know, care a whole lot? Flurry is missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not going to change my opinion from what it's been. I think you got to part ways with Flurry, and if, if the actual person that he is is anything resemblant of what people say he is, he will be waving that no trade clause just for the sake of 
Pittsburgh Penguins fans as a whole. Because he's that kind of guy. He he wants us to be happy, I guess. I mean, he knows he's getting towards the end of his career, so he's going to try and go play somewhere else. Start. Let us have the future and, and do what we got to do. But uh, throwing out a, throwing out an eight ball here. What if uh, Flurry wants to like he really really wants to stay with Pittsburgh in the city and the Pens and the team? What if he happens to like want to restructure his contract, you know, just so he can limit or free up some cap space, get a get some more extension? I don't know. Fucked. Still the still the problem is you can only protect that one goalie and. Uh, I think I think it'd be wise that the last time they expanded, uh, what was it, the Wild and who were the two teams? Um, whoever it was, the the last expansion draft, there were two teams, and I think the four the first four picks were all goalies. Um, so obviously wow. they put they put a very big emphasis on goalies, um, especially to start your team around. And I think whoever would go unprotected would probably be their pick. See, I mean, if you put Flurry up, there's the potential that he doesn't get picked. Because he's getting towards the end of his career. So, do you roll the dice on that? I think you absolutely do. Because you take a guy like Murray, who's got, say, 15 years left in his career, and you got Flurry, who's, say, got three or four left. Obviously, there's a hell of a trade-off there when you got the future of the league and the present of the league, if you will. Now, see, but isn't there another team that this just came to mind, and this isn't on the script, so I'm putting you guys on the spot, but... Isn't there another team, if we remember from last year in our playoff battles, the Tampa Bay Lightning, who have both, or they had Ben Bishop? Do they still have nope. Ben? He oh, went to the Dallas but they, So they kept Vasilevsky. Week. Right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Which Bert, Bert brings up an awesome idea, and I, I, I don't think any of us know the intricacies of the expansion draft rules that much. To I don't know if, if Fleury's able to restructure his contract and with a no it, trade clause? With, with a, yeah. Without the no trade clause. I don't yeah. know. That's not a situation I've seen in any any post. So that's that's a great question. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we can find an answer well, to that. But I mean, if he if he did restructure, then we'd have to we'd have to protect Murray, and right. then potentially he gets taken anyway. Right. 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 So we're back to square one. Right. So I don't know. It's tough because a week ago I was defending him on this podcast and talking about well if he, if he takes us to a cup, but it was it was a big it was contingent on that if and um, you know it's funny how quickly things can turn. And how a poor performance from him and a great performance from Murray can just turn our own views of sort of him, but that's you know that's playoff hockey and to use that phrase, but um, that's that's just the way it is, I guess. So, anybody else have anything to add on the Murray flurry? Okay, all right. I feel like this isn't the end of the discussion. It's certainly not no. the beginning, so mm-hmm. we're gonna keep going. But um, that's about it on the Pens for now. We're gonna shift over to the Steelers real quick, just to have some fun um, in this NFL off season. Uh, we each went around and picked one current NFL player not named Tom Brady that we'd add to the Steelers. Um, so we're going to go around and talk about why would you pick him, uh, how does he fit and help the Steelers organization. Uh, G, we'll start with you because I think we're all pretty interested to hear why you picked the guy you did. Okay. All right. So I picked A.J. Green. Um, I don't want to say the reason I picked him now because you all are going to put me on the spot. No, <laughs> no I mean, you add, that's the whole reason. That's the whole thing. Listen, it was obviously because I had him on my fantasy team the last few years. <laughs> I didn't know that. This is a staple. This is not a staple of this podcast, is Grant's First, fantasy Well, team. Barnage and AJ Green are two very different things. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I've had him on my fantasy team the last few years, and he's continuously performed. Um Last year he had the hamstring injury, I believe, so that kind of fucked me a little bit. 
but I was able to pull it off. I still won 350 bucks for all you guys wondering. Um, but Nobody I, was. What, 250 <laughs> or 350? Okay. But anyway, um, the reason I actually did pick him, not, not because he's awesome on my fantasy team for the last few years, but because what he would bring to the team, I mean, yeah, given we have a shit ton of wide receivers, but how many can actually catch? One. The other one can only catch. Uh, I mean, Martavis Bryant can when he's not high. The only thing, <laughs> yeah. dude, dude. The only thing, the only thing he can catch is a fucking uh, a drug test. But where's the Stephen A. quote? Yeah, blasphemous. <laughs> lay, off. lay off the weed. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> but you get you get a guy like AJ Green who can lay off the marijuana, and uh, he goes out, takes a little bit of the distraction off of Antonio Brown, and. Holy hell! A little you bit, got, Jesus. Yeah, All right, and then with the addition of James Conner, you got the backfield of what I would like to compare to the Greek gods. Um, <laughs> you got Zeus and fucking whoever the other guy was, but that's Connor. Yeah, that's okay. Connor, the other guy. <laughs> All right. But, um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, and, and one of you guys fucking go. Apparently, you so I picked Patrick Peterson, um, arguably the best corner in the league right now. Um, I'm not discounting the fact that, or not not discounting the fact, but I'm not playing away like the the Steelers' current quarterback's ability to play. Like you know, Will Gay, he's fairly solid all around most of the time. It's just the other guys they have hit or miss games where they either seem to get like burnt half the time, and then they can kind of just play with them the rest of the time. I just want I want I would love to see Patrick Peterson play with us because he the style of play that he has is very aggressive and physical, and he's and, you know, essentially a shutdown corner. Again, arguably the best in the league right now. You fit in perfectly with the Steelers system because with the the Cardinals, they're, they're, they like they like the blitz and so do the Steelers. Steelers West Coast. Yep. Mm-hmm. You need to fit right in and be able to, to mess with the guys very quickly and easily. Go. Yeah, I love Burt's pick. Uh, he's one of my favorite players, uh, especially cornerback-wise. Um, I thought this question was just fun. Um May and June are kind of quiet times for the NFL, so I, I figured we'd just dive into the wish lists and see what we could come up with. Uh, I chose Vaughn Miller um, for the sole fact that he's, he's Tom Brady's kryptonite. Uh, he set a, a single-game record in the AFC Championship game where they eventually won the Super Bowl with two and a half sacks, um, and he hit Brady four times. So uh, the biggest thing is, I, I saw a stat, I think ESPN retweeted it, that there, it was a, a list of quarterbacks and how they perform under pressure. And Brady was the, the the number one at when he's pressured. He has the highest drop from quarterback ratings um, when he's not pressured. And the Steelers have been unable to kind of get into Brady's head with that pressure on him. And I think you saw them address that in the draft this year with uh, drafting T.J. Watt. So I think Vaughn Miller would be perfect. Um, and he did intercept Brady in that in that playoff game as well. So he's just he just Brady's nightmare. Um, and Brady's the Steelers' nightmare, so Von Miller is the best pass rusher in the NFL. Um, so that's my pick, and I think Max is kind of going there that way as well. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned T.J. Watt because I actually I picked his brother J.J. Watt. Um, I know he's had he had back surgery this past year. It was the first real injury he's had in his whole career. But I mean, everybody knows the guy's just a fucking monster. In addition to all the sacks he's had, I mean, he's first guy in a while to have back-to-back twenty-sack seasons. And um, not only in addition to pass rushing, but he just mucks up the run. Um, he just seems like a prototypical Steelers player from the 70s and 80s, I guess, in terms of just 
that grit and grind D lineman that's just um, just a monster. And to be honest, I'm a little nostalgic of the Steelers steel curtain. I mean, I, we've definitely gone away from that, but the last, I mean, definitely the 05 Super Bowl where we had Paul Malu and Prime Harrison, um, Timmons, and lots of those guys, Ryan Clark flying around. I mean, that was a that was a a sort of a rendition of the steel curtain and it just seems like the Steelers it's just it's way better when they have a great defense because this this offense now it's a lot of fun it's fun to watch when it works really well but as we've seen in the playoffs um it's pretty easy to get mucked down and I just I guess I'm a little nostalgic in saying that I, I just missed the days when the Steelers were a top five defense because that has not been the case the last few years um, definitely. So, and I think JJ Watt would definitely help that. Definitely, the secondary is the biggest pressing need. But I just feel like for some reason Watt would have the single biggest impact of a single player um, to our defense, at least. So, um, so that was a little fun exercise. Hopefully, we can keep you know providing different things like that during this off season when it's a little slow with NFL news. Um, one, a couple pieces of NFL news that did come out. Ladarius Green and Greg Warren both released. We'll start with Ladarius as being one of the most hyped Steelers signings. Um, it seemed like a match made in heaven. Antonio Gates is back up for years and years. He was going to come to this free-flowing spread offense with A.B. and Martavis and Marcus Wheaton and just you know put up near Gronk numbers, and that never ended up happening. Um, so you know there was some headline in the Post Gazette today about him being the worst Steeler free agency signing ever. I'm not sure if I'll go that far, but it definitely was was not great just because of health and also it seemed like he had a little bit of attitude problems. So I don't know who wants to start on this, but it was definitely disappointing. Gee. All right. So I don't know a whole shit ton about this, but I'm going to assume, based on what my knowledge was last year, he was hurt when we signed him. Or recovering ankle. from a knee injury? Ankle, yeah. He had ankle surgery okay. before we got him. Okay, so I knew he was hurt. But um, what, what was the contract like? I mean, four, was it a pretty big contract? Yeah, four years, about five mil a year. Yeah, okay, so why are you signing a guy that just got back from ankle injuries Understood. to fucking play tight end for $20 million? Plus like a $5 million signing. Right, price. okay. So, yeah. I mean, that's just an asinine signing to me. I mean... Obviously, I'm not an NFL GM or anything, but <laughs> I I still think, why the fuck would you do that? He, he There's no way he had that much upside potential to warrant $20 million, plus a $5 million signing bonus. Blows my mind. Go ahead, Kev. Uh, I, I think he did warrant it. Um, it. It wasn't a huge contract. When you break it down, um, we paid Heath Miller a lot more than that. Uh, but his style, Max Max hit it right perfect, and, and it was something I was going to say. Is the style that, that Ladarius Green brought to the table was the, the run-and-gun, spread offense, um, mismatch. You, you can't put a tight end on him, or a, a linebacker on him because he's too fast, and you can't put a corner on him because he's a tight end, um, and he's big and he'll beat that. So he, he that just created, he, he created mismatches, um, and, and he was the perfect tight end that the Steelers wanted. And, and as far as the worst... Uh, free agent signing they didn't do their homework on this one um, and it wasn't ultimately the ankle injury that did him in it was the concussions that were not exactly disclosed to the Steelers when they uh, when they signed him so because they didn't do their homework there and, and if they knew about them then it makes it even worse but I think because they didn't know uh, about those concussions I think that makes it one of the worst signings in, in history 
Um, but as far as the money goes, they're only on the hook for about three and a half million um, this year in dead money, um, and then he's off the books. So it's not as bad as, as everyone makes it out to be. The, the contract was big, but ultimately, because he failed a, his physical and they can designate him as that, it, it's not as bad as it could be. Yeah, I, I want to go back to what Kev said uh, last podcast about how the, the Steelers, their tight ends, are like they're known for their blocking ability just mm-hmm. as much as their passing or their catching ability too. And knowing how the Darius Green played with the with the Chargers, you know, he was more just you know go catch the ball and on those mismatches and get some yards, you know. And it wasn't exactly one of those blocking tight ends that that the Steelers really need and play with all the time. So I wasn't once they originally picked him up, I wasn't exactly happy with it, but I wasn't you know too sad about it. You know, there's a lot of upside to it. If he can fit in with the the scheme that they play with. But obviously that did not work out between injuries and his style of play did not adapt to what the Steelers needed. Yeah, we were talking about it like before, and it's funny. It was like it's like a signing you make in Madden. It's like a six four, six five dude with like eighty plus speed. It was like fuck yeah, like you're gonna do that. Um, but it's just it it didn't seem like a very football smart move either in terms of fit or in terms of doing your homework, as Kev said um, with his you know, pre-existing conditions and different troubles that he's had. So I think it was just, it was more frustrating for people in the way of this, there was being so much hype and people, you know, loving Heath, but just that he was in the way that he was dependable, not explosive. And this guy had the potential to be explosive. And so we see, especially in the last few years with the evolution of the tight end position with guys like Gronk and I mean, even go back like Aaron Hernandez and Martellus Bennett and different guys like that who can function as a third or fourth wide receiver and it, it seemed like ideal especially with how much Ben wants to go to the tight end but uh, just didn't uh, end up working out for whatever reason. Kev? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll uh, fill in a little bit of the, the Steelers plans here um, what they can do at tight end uh, I don't believe that they'll go outside to sign a free agent um, they've got three tight ends currently on the roster from last year, um, obviously Jesse James and I saw that one of the beat writers that follow the Steelers explained that his blocking has greatly improved this year. That was one of the problems with Jesse James. Is he's, a, he's a really tall guy, um, so it's kind of hard for him to get leverage off the line when he's blocking. Um, they have David Johnson, who is a hard-nosed inline blocker, comes in in eye form and just kind of pound the ball down their throats, um, does what he's asked to do. I believe he used to be a fullback. And then the, the wild card in this is Xavier Grimble. Uh, he's an able receiver, and he was a pretty good blocker last year when they called on him, but he's a, a perennial practice squad guy uh, so I think those they'll go in-house for their guys to replace Ladarius um, which it, it's kind of weird that, that they didn't go to the draft this year where it was a pretty deep draft as far as tight ends go uh, especially if they knew that, that Ladarius was probably not going to make the roster so yeah I want to see the Steelers really work with uh, Jesse James he's uh, you know Sure, he's a little bit younger, but when I watched him when he was with Penn State, he was really dependable and playing at that that type of level where he's a little bit slower and the guys aren't nearly as big all the time. He was really dependable and he was able to make great catches in traffic and make very good you know football plays. And I think once once Steelers can work with him, get a little bit more meat on his muscles, meat on his bones, uh, he'll be he'll turn out to be maybe not next the next Heath Miller, but he'll turn out to be a very good good dependable tight end that they'll need. Yeah, I mean, building off of that, I don't necessarily think that this is going to get me much credit with, um, I guess, the fans. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> but 
do we really think that Pittsburgh likes guys that are explosive? Wouldn't we much rather have a guy that's dependable, goes into those fucking dirty areas that we don't want them to be in, <laughs> except for when they have to make a fucking play? Do like, you mean at the tight you, end position, talk- or do you mean in general? Yeah, I'm just saying in you, general, like sports in general. Are you talking about a, like a, a six five? 250-pound white tight end that everybody else Heath, no matter that it's his name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Jesse James is. That's what I'm saying. I want a Heath Miller forever. I want a guy that is dependable as shit who will go across the middle, take a fucking hit to the head, and still hold on to the ball. That's what I fucking want. You know, I think that just comes from being a fan and how the Steelers have always played and built their teams. Just yeah. The nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. nostalgia. Yeah. That's what I want. I don't need a fucking Gronk because look at what happened well, last year. He was out fucking 12 fucking games. I want, I want Gronk. Yeah. I want Gronk. Yeah. Who doesn't want Gronk? I think, I think, I think I don't Gronk. Know. I think I'd rather have a dependable player over somebody that can maybe catch 30. I don't know. I don't know what. 30 passes yeah. in three games? Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think Grant, like everybody else, um, all the other fans uh, in, in Pittsburgh, with rightfully so, I think they're all disappointed because the Steelers don't go outside and sign big name free agents like like every year. It's it's usually quiet on the market. So when they do go out and spend money, it's kind of expectations are up there, and these guys come in and they got to perform because when the Steelers sign a free agent, it, it's it's rare. Um, so that that played a big deal into this. Um, in okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's enough Ladarius Green talk um, <laughs> for guys already gone. Um, Kev, just touch on Greg Warren real quick because I know he's a longtime Steeler. He was a long snapper, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Greg, Greg Warren, Mister Dependable. Um, rarely do you hear long snappers ever get brought up in NFL talk, uh, but this guy was one of the best. Uh, he's actually he was the one of the last three that was on the '05 Super Bowl roster, um, leaving Ben and, and James Harrison left. Uh, so I was pretty pissed during the draft um, in the sixth round. The Steelers selected Colin Holba from Louisville, who is a long snapper. And I don't know if you guys follow the draft very much. I don't think you have to very deeply to know that long snappers just don't get drafted. Right. Uh, they're basically, they get signed in the offseason out of the practice squad, and if they're any good, they make the team. Uh, so I was real real angry when they did. They blew a six-round pick on somebody like a long snapper, but I guess it kind of makes a little bit more sense now, uh, but it's sad to see Greg Warren go. Yeah, I, I don't think the, the release statement did him justice. They... they put him down as, was it, like, failed physical or something like that? Yeah, yeah, but uh, he he released a statement and said that he basically agreed to it with the Steelers. He said that he's had two ACL injuries um, and surgeries to repair them, and he said that it was kind of his decision not to try out for the team and and basically go into competition with this rookie because of the long-term effects that it could have on his life was what he was quoted as saying. So the, the... Correct, politically correct way to, to release it is yes, he failed his physical, so that's how they designated him a cut. So. Okay. I would just like to add last uh, thing. People don't know the long snapper's name unless they fuck up. So not for all the people that don't really pay attention to football or pay attention to the Steelers in complete depth, Greg Warren is probably a pretty solid long snapper. Ever in the history of the league, well, if you've never heard his name, if you've never heard his name, that's good. Do you guys yeah. remember when James Harrison put one through the uprights? No. You guys, when he long snapped, never remember. Put one right nope. through the uprights. No safety when Harrison I don't came remember in. That. Wow. What the fuck? Yeah. So that's that's, that's how important uh, long snapping is when you're, a TBT. you're edge rushing Pro Bowl 
Hall of Fame guy takes a long snap and puts it through the uprights. So damn. Right on. All right. Well, that'll conclude on that note. The our uh, Steeler talk. Um, let's let's touch on the Pirates real quick. Um, you know, as we said before, we've been very fortunate as Pittsburgh sports fans and had a brief run with the Pirates the last couple of years, but that seems to be coming to an end with this year and how they've been playing. Um, you know, took two or three from the Nats, but lost tonight to the Phillies. Uh, remain firmly in last place in the NL Central, albeit probably the best division in baseball. Um, you know, nice start from Garrett Cole. It was nice to see a home run from uh, Josh Bell in that in that Nats one of the Nats wins. Um, so, but then they drop one of the Phillies tonight in a, a, a pretty pretty meek response from when we were flipping it on and switching between the Pens and Pirates. Um, you know, when David Freeze and a guy named Alan Frazier are your two best players, uh, you're pretty fucked, to put it frankly. Uh, McCutcheon's hitting 220. Uh, Josh Bell's, you know, hitting hitting well, but um, he's still around the 250 range. Jay Hayes doing what he does, but uh, the pitching continues to be a problem. They had Watson in tonight, and he he blew a he gave up a home run in the ninth for no reason um, when they were down like four two, and he gave up a three run homer. So, I mean, is there any hope for this year, or are we are we going to be relegated to prospects? Are we going to be a selling team rather than a buying team that we have in the past? Bert, Kev, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm the only one that, that digs deep into the Pirates here, um, at least right now. Uh, but yeah, this season I wouldn't expect much, um, and hopefully come the trade deadline they are sellers. Um, it just it depends on how much they can get out of them because people like Watson, like you mentioned, has been not very good this year, and he was always that talk coming in the off season that they would flip for. For something come the trade deadline for people looking for a setup man or a closer, but if you don't perform, I mean, you're not going to want anything from him. So, uh, Adam Frazier is one of my favorite players on this team. He's batting 342, and this kid just it just day after day comes up with clutch hits with runners on, which seems to be the Pirates' biggest biggest uh, weakness is trying to bat runs in when they're on base, but. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't have very much bright spots this season or anything to look forward to. Um, I guess I have some prospects that are pretty interesting um, after we get through. Right, and I don't mean to shit on Adam Frazier. God forbid if you're listening <laughs> to this podcast, Adam Frazier, you're not. But um, yeah, it's just you know, in a team that's supposed to be contending or has contended in past years, when you have names like Andrew McCutcheon, Gregory Polanco, even Josh Harrison, uh, Starling Marte is, is out, um, but. Adam Frazier's not the guy you see. You think you'd see at the list of uh, best batting averages on the team when you click on the Pirates. So, anybody else have anything? Yeah, I do. Uh, it's not really on the Pirates. Well, well let me okay. let me finish before Grant gets away from the Pirates. Yeah. Um, some four four players, four prospects I wanted to highlight this week. Um, I'll I'll finish up here quick. I want to start with Austin Meadows. Um, he's he's the basically the hope for the Pirates um, and the heir apparent to Andrew McCutcheon. Uh, he's a center fielder in Indianapolis right now. He's the number one prospect in the Pirates system, and I think he's top ten in the whole um, MLB. He's struggling early. He's hitting two twenty seven, um, and he attributes that to the eagerness to try to get to the show, um, especially when Marte went down. He kind of felt like it was his responsibility to fill that gap, um, and he, he just mentions himself trying to kill the ball at every at-bat. Uh, so hopefully he figures it out. I think we will see him come August. Uh, they're going to have to see what they've got in them at some point, kind of like they found out with Glass now this year. 
Um, my next is Edgar Santana. I think he will be up sooner than later. He's the best reliever that they have in their system right now. He's got a .39 ERA, um, and that, I think, is after giving up three runs last night. So that tells you how, how great that he's doing this year. Uh, five for five on saves. Nick Kingham is somebody that, that I liked. Uh, he went through Tommy Johns, um, but this is his first full year back from injuries. Uh, he's got a 169 ERA, um, and opponents are hitting 167 off him. And finally, my favorite prospect is Mitch Keller. Uh, the guy just throws complete fire. Uh, he's currently in Bradenton, which is their low A team. Uh, so it'll probably be three years before we see this kid, but there's a name to watch. Um, he's fun to watch, and uh, I'm excited about him. Yeah, I just think short term, unless the Pirates can really turn something around, you're just gonna it's gonna be a, a year where they just start testing out those prospects, see what they can get out of them. All right, I mean, I, I like I said earlier, I, I'm gonna touch on something that's not really related to the Pirates. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Pittsburgh. <laughs> what the fuck is this? What the fuck? Hijacking the podcast. Finish her off, man. <laughs> The Riverhounds are in uh, third place this year. <laughs> so, the I reason, can't do it. The what are the Riverhounds, Grant? What are they? The, re- the reason for all the giggles, we specifically said that this is not going to happen. This is not going to be a topic of the podcast. All right, so the Riverhounds are in third place. Who the fuck are the, the Riverhounds? <laughs> Who are the Riverhounds, Grant? Uh, they're, the, they're the Pittsburgh Premier Soccer Team. Um <laughs> So They're, it's professional, yeah. <laughs> it's professional. It That's why you never know. It counts. Yes. So please tell us more. Um, <laughs> this year they're uh, they're kind of in a rebuilding stage. Are uh, they? <laughs> uh, rookie Victor Sudo is. <laughs> what? Tell us more about no, Victor. No. Come on. Victor's got like four goals in the nine games they've played, which is pretty intense for soccer players. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> All right, great. We're gonna we're gonna assign this topic to you for future podcasts. Right. This is your okay. specialty. He's got the Riverhounds beat from now on. So come here for exclusive Pittsburgh Riverhounds coverage. All right, this will uh, this will conclude episode uh, three of the Steel City Scrubs. Um, as we always say, or as I guess I said last time, go Pens, go Bucks, go Stillers, and go Riverhounds. All right. All right. Take care.